Well, good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. My name is Matthew. I'm one of the elders here, and I've been on uh, vacation a bit here, so I just want to start by saying that Vanessa and I are grateful for the opportunity to rest this summer. The last time I was preaching in this building was the first weekend in July, and I preached at the church camp out, and besides that, I've been on a, on a break, and um, I was able to make some progress on my dissertation in July, and able to rest with my family for most of August, so thank you to the elders and deacons and staff, and thanks to Trevor for uh, feeding the congregation so well from God's Word. But a, a good break, a healthy break, doesn't and shouldn't beget the desire for more rest, but the fruit of a good break and the fruit of good rest is the burden to return. The burden to return back to the task at hand. And one place that I was stirred in, and I have been before, when I've been gone, is the first chapter in Romans, where Paul says in verse 11, I long to see you, and he says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And what's really striking about that passage is that he's writing this letter to Christians. He says in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's writing to Christians, and he says his eager desire is to come to them and to preach the gospel to them. He wants to remind them of the good news of Jesus, which is just such a helpful reminder to us that the good news of Jesus is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it is the A to Z of Christianity. It is not just how we get into the kingdom, it's the way that we progress, it's the way that we need to continue to delve and plunge the depths of the good news of Jesus and how it impacts all of our lives. And that's what Paul longed to do, and I have that burden this morning. I have that burden, that eager desire to preach the gospel to you. So today we are starting a three-part series looking at our core distinctives as a local church. And our core distinctives as a local church our community, family, and mission. Now, core distinctives aren't necessarily necessary. You don't have to have core distinctives in order to be a church. There's no verse that says, thus saith have core distinctives. But they can help us. And they can help us to better understand our cultural moment. They can under, help us to understand how God calls us to be faithful as a Christian witness in this place and at this time. They can help us to talk about how does the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ speak into this moment. And our cultural, or excuse me, our core values, they, 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 our core distinctives represent that. So community, one of the reasons we have community as a core distinctive is because we live in a radical Western individualistic culture. We live in probably the most individualistic culture in the history of the world. We are told that the way to find yourself, the meaning of life, is to be you and true to you and true to yourself, and don't let anybody or anything prevent you from being that. And that's just very unique. We're like fish in water and don't know we're wet. That is very unique to the, to the cultural moment that we live in. Most of the world doesn't think that. And most of the history of the world didn't think that. They thought that we were to contribute to the community, that we were to contribute to the group, to contribute to the whole. So we have community as a core distinctive because the Bible speaks very directly into that desire. Family. We have experienced as a society the utter breakdown of the nuclear or the natural family. 
easy divorce, rampant sexual ethics, and so the need to speak into the natural family is of a cultural significance right now. And mission. Mission, meaning that we are a missional community, meaning that Jesus has called us and sent us to be on mission, that he's called us to go to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching people to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. That's what it means to be on mission. It's a direct marching order from Jesus himself. But we live in a society that says private faith just should be private, it shouldn't impact the public sphere, and so on and so forth, and it's just not true. We live in a coexist society that says all religions are equal, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So we must be a community, we must be a people, we must be a church that's on mission. So those are our three core distinctives as a church, and this morning we start a series looking at all three of them, and this morning we're going to look at community. We're going to do so by looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. So I'll read the text to us. And then we'll unpack it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a Zion... In Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray for me, with me? Father, we come to you this morning hungry to see Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you with many different perspectives, different circumstances and stations in life. Some are rejoicing, some are weary, some are elated, some are sorrowful, and yet we all come, and we ask you to feed us and nourish us from your word. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would help me as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. So by way of context, and then I'll tell you what our three points are. Well, somebody already put it on the screen. It's fine. It's fine. Don't take it off. Let me give you a little context here to understand uh, the book of 1 Peter. There are a few very key hinge points uh, in the Old Testament that mark and define the people of Israel. Uh, Their culture and their way of life and their understanding of their own scriptures are very much defined by a few key moments 
in the life of Israel. And understandably so, because two very significant moments in Israel's history would be the exodus from Egypt and would be the exile into Babylon. The two very significant moments that define the history of Israel and define the Hebrew scriptures and how they're read would be the exodus out of Egypt early in their history and the exile into Babylon, which would be late in their history. And Peter picks up on both of these in his letter. Peter picks up on both of these ideas and these themes in his letter. You see, he hearkens back to the book of Daniel, and and part of the story in the book of Daniel where the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon is that Daniel and his friends did not assimilate too deeply into Babylonian culture, but they also didn't separate themselves from Babylonian culture. So they didn't assimilate too deeply, but they also didn't completely remove themselves from Babylonian culture. They lived this knife-edge tension of living in the city and being a blessing while not being consumed by the city's culture, values, and ways of life. And it's within this kind of framework that Peter has in mind when he's writing to a group of Christians some 600 years later or so after Daniel. We know that Peter has the Babylonian exile in mind because of the language he uses. Listen, now he starts the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. Elect exiles in the dispersion. And then he closes the letter, 1 Peter 5, 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, and so on. So what we would call that in just normal Bible study language is called top and tail. Top and tail. So the way the letter starts and the way the letter ends can often give you an idea of what the letter is about. The way it starts and the way it ends can often give you an idea of what it's about. By example, you could look at the book of Matthew, right? The book of Matthew starts with a genealogy, that he's the son of Abraham, that he's the son of David, which means he's the chosen one, which means he's the king. And it ends by saying, all authority has been given to me. Top and tail. Commentator Karen Job says it like this. Peter frames his letter in the motif of the historic Babylonian exile in order to identify his readers with the promise of deliverance. Because there's a notion, there's an idea throughout the whole book of aliens and strangers who are going to suffer. Aliens and strangers in a land that's not their own. So the challenge remains for us. It's always the same. The challenge is always to live among the peoples of the world, to be a blessing to them, and yet to remain distinct. It's the same challenge. It's the same challenge I was given to, to, that was, that was, that was a, a, in the exile, the same challenge in the dispersion that Peter's writing to, and it's the same challenge that we come across in 2019 living in Portland, Oregon. To be a blessing to the world around us and yet to remain distinct. God's people are holy, which means that they are distinct. Peter would tell us, he'll remind us earlier in the letter in chapter 1, be holy as I am holy, which means to be distinct. And our holiness is the very reason that we're able to be a blessing. Our holiness comes from the fact that God has chosen us, that he's given us a new heart by the Holy Spirit, and now enables us to live holy and honorable lives among the peoples of the world. Our holiness is what makes us a blessing. But our holiness is also what makes us a stranger. Our holiness is what makes us aliens and exiles and strangers and sojourners because we're residents of another country. We're residents of a heavenly country. It's like that place 
when the hobbits return to the Shire after their great adventure. And they're still hobbits in one sense, but in another sense, they've been changed because of their journey. They laugh harder and they cry deeper, it says. They laugh harder and they cry deeper. But this distinctiveness is the way that they're able to be a blessing to the rest of the Shire. So let's look at this text. After looking at this context here, under three headings, we're going to be talking about this notion notion of being resident aliens. And we're going to look at something that's massively significant in enabling us to be resident aliens. And what Peter gives us is he gives us a description of the church. He gives us a description of the church. If we're ever going to be faithful resident aliens, to be a blessing to the people around us and yet to remain distinct, you have to, you can only do it by being a member of a community, by being a member of a local church. So that's why this text is very close at the heart of the vision of the gathering church. So it's looking under three headings. One, a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, and a missional community. First, a spiritual house, verses four to eight. Look at this description first here that Peter gives us when he talks about the church. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men but precious in the sight of God, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He says, We come to him, and he gives the analogy that we're like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Spiritual, living stones, that come to Jesus, verse 4, being built into a spiritual house. A spiritual house. What is a spiritual house? A spiritual house is a dwelling place for God. He's giving temple-like analogy to us. Okay, You can see it in the other theme in verse 5 there where he talks about being a holy priesthood. And then in verse 9 he's going to call us a priesthood again. So he's building on this analogy, this imagery of temple. Of temple, a place where God comes to dwell among his people. And he says that Now, the way that God's going to dwell among his people is through living stones, through human beings being built together in a radically committed community. What this text is saying in great economy of style and with very vivid imagery is that when you and I come to Jesus, he builds us together to be a dwelling place for his presence. When you and I come to Jesus, he builds us together to be a dwelling place for his presence. And you must know that only... In only one place in the New Testament do the writers refer to the Holy Spirit indwelling us as individual temples. That's a place in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Holy Spirit indwells us as individual temples. And I don't want to downplay the weight of that passage, but you must know that every other time the Bible talks about indwelling us as a temple, it is a corporate reality. The Bible talks about God's presence indwelling us as a temple as a corporate reality. In a building... Every brick in the wall has stones above it that heavily depend upon it. And when you are shaken, those above you are shaken. And when you are removed, the wall is in danger of actually collapsing. And this is God's description of the house of God. It describes the normal Christian life as a life that's committed into interdependent relationships with other Christians, like the structure of a building being built together. 
Yet so many of us, yet so many Christians live radically independent lives attached from any local assembly. There was a survey that came out a couple years ago from Barna, and it said 81% of Christians believe that they can live faithful, committed, mature Christian lives apart from the local church. 81% of people, Christians, believe that they can live mature, normal, healthy Christian lives apart from the local church. That idea is nowhere found in the New Testament. And that idea is absolutely foreign to what Peter is talking about here in this text. Peter is saying that when you come to Jesus, you're being built together with other people. It just assumes, Peter just assumes that when you come to Jesus, you're coming to him with other people and being built in together as a spiritual house. This is the notion of community. This is the notion of the local church. This is the notion of being radically committed to one another. It's what God's house looks like. God's house doesn't look like a bunch of random people associated uh, just with each other and their own, and their own, their own proclivities and so on. Peter's going to pick up on the language. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he's going to get it, pick up on the language of at the edge at the mount at the, at the at the edge of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. God did not save a bunch of isolated individuals in Exodus chapter 19. God has rescued His people Israel. He's brought them out of the house of slavery under Pharaoh, and he's made them to be his people. So we have to ask ourselves, are we sharing our lives, our thoughts, our gifts, our money, our talents, our time with the Christians around us? Or to put it another way, ask yourself, are you participating in such a committed way that if you shake, the body shakes? Are you participating in such a way, to such a degree, that if you just leave, the body would be affected? Are we so built into each other's lives that if you stopped coming, something would collapse? Listen to this quote from Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Total Church. He says, the unchurched will see that it is good to know God as they see the love of the Christian community. As Francis Schaeffer said, our relationship with each other is the criterion that the world uses to judge whether or not our message is truthful. Christian community is the ultimate apologetic. You understand the weight of what these two Christian authors are suggesting. And I think what Peter is pressing into us too. That the world lives in a radically individualistic realm. Dog eat dog, out for myself. At the end of the day, it's just about me. But the church is called to be so radically interconnected and interdependent that it causes the world to scratch their head. There must be something different that is so strong, a force that's strong enough to offset even the cultural um, moray of our day, that there must be a message within this community that's worth looking at. And this is just another reason why local church membership is so significant. You know, membership is just a mechanism. It's just a mechanism that enables us to obey what the Bible commands us. It's just a mechanism. It's just a way in which it's a tool that we can obey what the Bible commands us to do. 
If the Bible says we're living stones, if the Bible tells us that we're to be built into one another, then membership just helps us to do that. It just helps us to do that. We live. It's the air we breathe, as I've said so many times in this sermon. Everything around us teaches us to live autonomous individual lives. It's why the sexual ethic of the day continues on, to be whatever you want to be, and anything that comes in the way is bigoted and intolerant. It's why the sexual revolution has gone far beyond the bounds of just accepting people's actions. The sexual revolution has now come into the realm of people's private personal thoughts. Now I must think that what you are doing is right or I'm regressive. This is nothing like the world has ever seen before. And the antidote is commitment to a local church where your identity is not found in your sexual preference, but your identity is found in Jesus Christ, first and foremost. You're not a gay Christian or a lesbian Christian or a stealing Christian or a lusting Christian or a lying Christian. You're a Christian. You're a child. You're a son. You're a daughter of the king. That's your identity. And that's realized that's appreciated, that's found, that finds its depth, that finds its meaning, that finds its anchoring in the local church, in the people of God, who will tell you the truth about yourself. And the truth about yourself is that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. Do you live this way? Are you radically committed to a local assembly of believers? Is it the most important thing about you? Does it impact your decisions? Does it impact what kind of job you have, where you live? And the second thing that I want to just press into us is it's how the power of the Holy Spirit comes down into your life. That's what Peter's saying, isn't it? Isn't he saying that's how the power of the Holy Spirit, that God builds a spiritual house, that God's power, his presence, the Holy Spirit comes into your life in the midst of the local church? Isn't that what he's saying? So I think you must hear it from me because I love you. You can't expect the power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life just through your quiet time. Though you need a quiet time. You can't expect the power of the Holy Spirit to just come into your life if you're an isolated individual. I've seen some of you with your big toe in the water for far too long. Men, you need to lead your families to commit and to be built into a spiritual house. Singles. You need to commit to a local church and be built into a spiritual house. So not just waste these early years before you get married or before you go to school or you're building your career. It's not true. It's a lie from the world. It's a lie from the devil. You need to be committed to a local church, be built into a spiritual house. You know, one reason you might ask yourself, why would this be? Why would it be that the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit only fully comes down to us in community? I was thinking about, um, about that place in C- where C.S. Lewis talks on the four loves. When his friend Charles died, he realized that part of his other friend died as well because there was a part of his other friend that only Charles could bring out. And I was thinking about that because this last weekend we drove up to see my in-laws and uh, my daughter, Annalisa, went with Tyler and Michelle and rode in their car. And I just was marveling in the drive how my family was different without just one kid there. And I got a lot of kids. I got eight kids. And you might think I'd be relieved. I was a little bit. Just kidding. I wasn't. But it struck me how when she's not there, the rest of them act just a little bit different. Because there's something that Annalise's presence 
brings out part of Aletheia's presence and personality that I can't. And there's part of Annalisa's presence that does something to Benjamin's personality that Vanessa and I don't bring out. And so when just one is missing, we don't get the fullness of everybody else in the car. Okay, if that's true of a 13-year-old girl, okay, bringing out the personality of others, how much more true could it be with God? I can't know this infinite being on my own. When I'm in a room with 150 to 200 other people and I see the way that you relate to him and how your struggles have impacted your, your view of God and your trust in him and your faith in him, it builds me up. Imagine how that is with compounded. I mean, we go from a, a, this big old homeschool family to a church talking about the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent God. You can't know God on your own. So let me give a couple applications to you. Number one, we have a membership class coming up <laughs> on Sunday, September 22nd at my house. <laughs> you should be there if you're not a member of the church yet. <laughs> Very practical applications today. <laughs> Number two, we make community groups to be very central to the vision and mission of our church. We create these these structures, these places, so that you can be in relationship with other people in the church. And we want to relaunch our community groups. It's the fall. It's a fresh time to commit to one, to join one. There's a wall in the back of the old chapel called Connect Central. Some of the community group leaders will be there today after church to talk to you. Um, You can email us at connect at thegatheringchurch.com. That email goes to the pastors. We can help you connect yourself to a community group. But our vision is that every single member of this church would be in a community group to learn. Sometimes I feel like community group is just a training wheel, and that's okay. It just helps us. It builds habits. We need to create habits and structures in our lives. It's the habit of just getting together on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, being in each other's lives, learning to listen to each other's prayer needs, learning to pray for one another. We all need it. So that's our exhortation to you, to be part of a community group. And if you're not a member of this church, to at least come to the membership class on September 22nd in my house and ask the questions you have. Ask these more questions about membership. Why membership? I realize that it's, it, it could be a, a new topic for many. Now I must make one more connection before going to the second point. <laughs> Maybe two. <laughs> the core distinctives of our church are intentionally uh, interrelated. The core distinctions of our church are intentionally interrelated. So being involved heavily in community, let's say as a man and a husband and a father, contributes to your ability to be an effective husband and father. You need men in your life to hold you accountable. You need men in your life to challenge you. You need men in your life to encourage you, to help you. So leaving your family for a little bit to be involved in the a community group or a triad or a discipleship group doesn't somehow make your family suffer. It improves your ability to be an effective father and husband. It shows your kids something else, that they're not the center of the universe. It shows your kids that that their father, or it shows your wife that her husband is radically committed to Jesus and what Jesus is doing in Jesus' people. It's also, I think I've already alluded to this and we've kind of seen it in the text, but they're connected to mission as well. That the church is a missional community. A radically interconnected, committed church is a missional church. It's an effective witness to the watching world. So these aren't isolated core distinctives. 
They're not separate from each other. They don't somehow, they're not competing with one another. They're good for each other. They encourage the other. All right. Point two. A royal priesthood. Verses 9 to 10. In this passage here, Peter is using the same language. Uh, He's picking up directly from Exodus chapter 19, as we've said, and descriptors that God uses of Israel in the Old Testament. It's the same language that's used just after they're rescued from the hand of Pharaoh. Lindsay read it this morning. I'll quote part of it, starting in Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak before the people of Israel. What does this mean? What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? What does it mean to be a holy nation? Well, first, let me put it to us personally. Let me put it to us personally. Um, you remember that the, that the priests in the Old Testament wore very elaborate vestments. They wore elaborate garments and clothing. They, uh, they dressed themselves up to go before the presence of God. And we can understand that on a, in, a, in a modern context. The times that we would dress ourselves up, our appearance. Maybe we had an important job interview. Maybe we were going to a graduation. Maybe we had a college uh, interview, something of that nature, we would dress ourselves up. We would put our best self forward. And that's similar to what the priests are doing. It's symbolic of becoming holy, becoming blameless before God as they enter into the temple and they enter into the Holy of Holies. But you know what's striking in the New Testament? As Peter is quoting this verse and he's proclaiming to the Christians that are in the dispersion, that they are a kingdom of priests. There's no garments. The man that wrote this letter is the man that preached at Pentecost, and he was a fisherman. He didn't put on vestments and garments in order to stand before the people and preach and declare the word of God to them. They're a kingdom of priests because they're not dressed up anymore, because they're wearing, they're dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're standing as kingdom of priests. Their priesthoodliness comes from the fact that they're standing under the great high priest himself. He's the one who was perfectly righteous. He's the one who was clothed in perfection and has now given it to them and given it to you personally. The vestments and the garments are gone. Because you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and him alone. So that's at least what it means to us personally. It means that we are a kingdom of priests because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It means we belong, not because of what we've done. We belong, we're a member of this priesthood because of what Jesus has done for us. The second thing it means, we said this again, I have to say it again, is that God did not rescue an individual, uh, he rescued a group of people, excuse me, God did not rescue a group of people so that he could relate to them individually, he rescued a group of people so that he could relate to them corporately. He was interested in making a people, he's interested in making a kingdom of priests, he's interested in making a holy nation, he's interested in making a people. 
And he's interested in making a people that will intercede before God to a watching world, that will implore people to bow their knee, to repent of their sins, to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to look to him and look to him alone. That's what it means to be a priest. It's an intercessor, one that intercedes between God and the people, to join them and say, join us in the priesthood over here. You too can be an intercessor to plead with the people to turn from their sin and turn to God through Jesus Christ. That was his intention. That was God's intention from the whole beginning in Exodus chapter 19. God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt by nothing of their own, simply by his sheer mercy and grace. He brings them to himself and he says, now, if you indeed obey my voice, you'll be my treasured possession in all the earth. Then he gives them the Ten Commandments. They're accepted, then they're called to obey, not the other way around. They don't obey and then they're accepted. God rescues them prior to giving them the Ten Commandments. God rescues them prior to giving them the Ten Commandments. Because he rescues them out of sheer mercy and grace. Then he gives to them his law. Because his intention all along is that his people would be a holy, distinct, missional, outreaching, light-to-the-world kind of community. And that's realized As Peter brings up this language here, it's realized in the church. It's realized in the New Testament. There's more we could say here. But we need to keep going. Because I went a little long earlier. Point three. Was verses 11 to 13, is he's made us to be a missional community. And this is the great tension that we've kind of been alluding to this whole time. We've been talking about being a very radical and interdependent community, and yet now, what Peter's going to call us to, he's, he's going to say, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, the struggle through the ages of Christianity is to either be liberal or sectarian. To either be liberal or sectarian. To be liberal is to say, have a very low bar of belief and to just accept everybody. And to be sectarian is to be legalistic to have community standards and to say the problem is out there. The problem's not in here, the problem's out there. Liberals tend to just give in and assimilate to the, the cultural norms, the cultural mores. You can think of very liberal streams of Christianity that are just they just look just like the world. The sectarian way can be to vilify the world and just keep everyone separate. What's interesting is that both groups are actually seeking power. That the, the liberal group is seeking power just by agreeing with what everybody already thinks. You know, to, to be in the, in the good graces of the cultural elites. You know, you know pat them on the back and, and give them the religious stamp of approval and seek influence and so on in that regard. But the, the sectarian, the separatist, is the same thing. It's seeking power by saying, the problem's out there, come here, come inside the camp, come inside the walls, be safe over here. Both are seeking power. And both, actually, if you think about it, are avoiding suffering. The liberals are avoiding suffering by just giving in, not getting the backlash, the pressure, 
not being called bigots, not being called intolerant, and so on. And the sectarians are avoiding suffering by just staying away, just not being involved with it. Just forget those crazies, right? But Peter calls us to something radically different. Peter calls us to something radically different. He says, you are sojourners and exiles. He says, you may not assimilate. You may not assimilate. But he's also saying, you must live among the Gentiles. It was a very helpful book in understanding the early church, and it's called uh, The Rise of Christianity, and it's by a sociologist, anthropologist, historian named Rodney Stark. It's a great book. And he notes nine things that the earliest Christians, uh, what made them distinct. He said they didn't go, number one, they didn't go to the Colosseum. They didn't go to the gladiatorial uh, games, the the violent stuff. Uh, They didn't support Caesar's wars of conquest, conquest and militarism. They didn't support abortion or infanticide. Number four, they empowered women. They empowered women. Number five, they said no sex outside of marriage. Number six, they said no same sex. Number seven, they gave radically to the poor. Number eight, they were racially integrated. They were racially integrated. Read Acts 13. And number nine, they said that Jesus Christ is the only way. They lived in a pagan culture. There were gods everywhere, and they said Jesus Christ is the only way. These people are aliens. These people are strangers. Listen to this. What does it sound like? Uh, Don't support militarism, empower women, give to the poor, racially integrated. Sounds maybe a little liberal. How about this? Uh, Don't support abortion, no sex outside of marriage, Jesus is the only way, no same sex. Sounds a little conservative. The earliest Christians were neither liberal or conservative. The earliest Christians were neither separatists or liberals. The earliest Christians were radically different in every single way. The early, the, early, the early church was just radically different in every single way, and the same is true today. God is calling the church to be something that's radically countercultural, that doesn't identify with any particular political group, any particular affinity group. They're called to be resident aliens, a radically countercultural community. Jesus said, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill and cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, when it says good works in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, or it says good deeds here in First Peter chapter 2, it's not just referring to just a morally upright life. It's referring to serving, to being a blessing, to actually serving the world around you, to actually serving those that disagree with you and are going to vilify you. Peter said that they're going to vilify you. They're not going to like you. And yet some of them, and yet some of them may be saved because of God's mercy. You know, that's what's so radically powerful in being a Calvinist and believing that God is the one who saves. Because God is the one who saves means that the results are not up to me, it's not up to you. God calls us to radically preach the gospel and he and his spirit will do the work. He even says it in verse 7 that they were destined to disobey. They were destined to disobey. We read this morning in our, um, our scripture of, of, of pardon, John chapter 1, verse 12. 
to all who came to him, he gave the right to become children of God, not by the will of man or the will of the flesh, but by the will of God. It was by the will of God that he saved you. If you're a Christian here today, it's because God in his sovereign mercy chose to save you. It's because someone was faithful to preach the gospel to you and trust God with the results. And that's the call upon us, to preach the gospel faithfully, to live honorable lives among the pagans, live honorable lives among the Gentiles, to live lives of good works, of good deeds, of service, knowing that we're going to be vilified, knowing that we're going to be vilified. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we have the power, the strength to do that? Well, it's right here in our text. You know, we've... We live in a, in a time... It's not unique. But we live in a time when we have seen in our church and we've seen uh, those that we know that have walked away from Jesus. That have walked away from Jesus. We've seen Christian leaders. You know, we, we have our, our, some of our, our children that have walked away from Jesus. And we remember our, our brother Greg Harris, who's here. He's a member of our church. And his son publicly abandoned the faith recently. And we mourn. And we grieve. And we grieve with you. And we remember that, for one, the story's not over. That God is sovereign. That he's the one that's in control. We continue to pray. We continue to implore But this text tells us something about this reality. We must ask the question, is Jesus precious to you? Is Jesus precious to you? And how does he become precious to you? How does he become precious to you? Jesus becomes precious to you when you see him as the cornerstone who was rejected. He was rejected. He was the perfect son of God. He was the glorious one. He was the king in all his beauty and glory. And we rejected him. And in the hour of greatest, of greatest of miracles, on the cross, while being reviled, while being rejected by his family, while being rejected by his own disciples, Jesus Christ stayed on the cross. He remained. The one who could have called angels and myriads of angels to come to his defense, to swoop and end the whole situation, stayed in the greatest act of humility and was crucified for your sake. Does that become precious to you? There was an article that was helpful most recently. That oftentimes when people... Leave the faith. This is by Eric Raymond. He's a pastor in Boston. He's just imploring us to look at Jesus. We don't often hear people say that Jesus was dishonorable. We don't often hear people say that Jesus was unfaithful. We don't hear people say that Jesus wasn't good. We don't hear people say that Jesus was unloving. We don't hear people say that Jesus wasn't sacrificial in his service. We don't say, hear people saying Jesus let them down. We don't hear stories of people saying Jesus wasn't what 
they wanted. The truth is, Raymond says, people don't often turn away from the faith and talk much about Jesus. He's neither impugned nor discredited. They may talk about the church. They may wince at the Bible's teachings. They may talk about their personal journey. But Jesus, he remains as he was before Pilate. Even though he is central to the whole discussion, people seem to look right past him. Like Pilate, they wash their hands. In their silence, they say, I find no guilt in him. Raymond concludes, my heart breaks for them. Being a Christian is hard enough. Pretending to be one would be excruciating. But instead, I want to point out, and by way of warning, directing Christians to the writer of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Come to him as the rejected one. He came to his own, and his own knew him not. He was rejected by all. And he didn't react He persisted because he was precious to God. He was the precious one, the chosen one, and he gives us that honor in the gospel. Has he become precious to you? Do you see him as the rejected cornerstone for you and your sake? The ultimate insider became the ultimate rejected outsider for you. Is he precious to you? Look to him. Look to him and him alone. And when you see him, it'll help us. It'll help us to get through the difficulties of life. If you see him and see him as precious and see him as worthy and see him as beautiful and glorious, it'll help us to be radically committed to each other. It'll help us to lay down our own preferences, our own proclivities. When we see him, consider Jesus. Look to him, the precious stone. Let us pray.